In a climate-conscious economy, businesses' social license to operate depends on how proactively they are addressing environmental issues. Consumers want proof that companies are making changes to their business models to achieve sustainability targets. And investors want information about how climate change is impacting the profitability of those companies. I'm Marianne Gro, sustainable finance reporter at Euromoney magazine. And in this episode of ESG Conversations, I met with Andy Garraway, climate policy analyst at Resilience. Resilience is a tech company that helps its clients understand their exposure to the physical and transition risks that are associated with climate change. Andy and I met back in June at Climate Action Week in London. In this episode, you'll hear us talk about what mapping out climate risk exposure looks like. And because that can't really happen without data, you'll also hear about scenario analysis, the Brussels effect, and what new disclosure requirements mean for the business community as a whole. At Resilience, mapping out climate risks starts with digitalization. We build a digital twin, so a, uh, an, a digital version of a company and use that to um, expose it to a variety of scenarios and uh, sort of shocks, external shocks, both on the physical risk side of, of climate change and on the transition risk side of climate change, and also a host of business and, and enterprise risks as well. What that does is it enables a company to understand in a data-driven way, actually the potential implications of climate and you know business risks on its financials first and foremost but also what are the key things that it needs to do to reduce its exposure to those risks the desire was to take this academic approach to business risk and turn it into something that provided actionable and meaningful insights for companies and that's where resilience came from. And so can you tell me a bit about the methodologies that you use in order to kind of create these climate scenarios and illustrate the exposure of the company to climate or transition risks? The key thing is that our, through all our approaches and all our models, they're very much based on the science which exists. So that's an approach which we believe should sit at the core of each of our models, this, you know, focus on the, the, the climate science, but also on other aspects of science as well. So we look at a variety of, as I mentioned, physical and transition risks. So on the transition side, for instance, we're looking at what are the potential policy risks that will arise for a business, both now and in the future and under a variety of what we refer to as emissions pathways. So how might society and the actions that we take to decarbonize or, or, or not to decarbonize impact on the choices and the external factors which a business faces. So we have things like policy, we have the reputational aspects of, of business, we have you know, the technology and whether their assets are impaired by the sort of political and environmental choices that need to be made under specific pathways. Uh, we have, you know, um, how consumer behavior may shift and drive uh, a necessary response from business to adapt to those changes um, and issues such as climate litigation. So how may, uh, you know, individuals or uh, activist groups start taking action against businesses whom they deem to either be you know 
greenwashing through their actions or taking insufficient action on, on climate change as well. So those are the sort of key uh, themes that, that we, that we uh, approach. And throughout all of them, we incorporate, you know, the latest uh, modeling on uh, physical climate change. Um, so for instance, the, the IPCC's uh, most recent, uh, you know, um, report, AR6, and the sort of climate models which come out of that, those sit at the core of how we actually uh, calculate um, impacts. And fundamentally, we want to put this in terms that business decision makers understand, and that is primarily financial. So we apply these theoretical frameworks on you know, everything from policy to litigation and apply that to a company's balance sheet to understand in cash terms, what is their risk exposure? And that's a really useful approach because it provides not only the you know, sustainability team within an organization with the insights that they need to go away and justify investment to reduce that risk exposure, but it puts it in terms that the decision, the real decision makers in the organization, the, the CFO, the CEO, they understand what that risk actually means to them as a business. And it provides them with a really clear incentive as to why they need to be putting not only, you know, money behind these, um, behind these initiatives, but actually what the risk is to them as a business, to their business survival, and ultimately how their business strategy needs to, to evolve in, in response. So does that mean that you take, you know, these kind of themes that you were mentioning, like climate litigation, for example, and then translate that into a potential cost to the business in the long run if it were to be exposed to a climate litigation case? That's exactly right. Yeah. And how that exposure may change over time also is impacted by what the world looks like at a certain point. So I think it's important to say that we don't we don't assign likelihood to any one of these you know, scenarios. We're not saying the world you know, is on track to to be one point five or that that is what a company should be uh, you know, assessing. We're simply saying that this, you know, this is what that world may look like. Um, you know, and that should be factored into uh, a company's strategy. And has the arrival of AR6, the latest IPCC report, changed significantly the way that you kind of assess these climate scenarios? Has there been a, a massive development? I wouldn't say it's, it's uh, you know, it's not a complete uh, change is more incremental with each instance of the work of the IPCC and, and, you know, various other climate models. The science becomes more uh, developed and more detailed and it provides, you know, additional certainty around particular events or, or particular trends. I think with each of the IPCC reports, what we're seeing is the gap is widening between you know where we need to get to in terms of emissions reductions and where we are on 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 track and that is narrowing that window in which we can take as a global force rather than individuals or or companies but on a global scale which we can take action to actually ensure 
we are meeting the necessary emissions reductions to hold temperature increases to levels which don't lead to you know runaway and extreme climate change yeah but so then where do you fall on the whole debate about how tied to reality these climate scenarios might be i feel like there's a lot of criticism coming from the science community about maybe the 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 dislocation between the climate scenarios that have been adopted by the financial sector as a whole in order to quantify climate and transition risk and the data and information that we actually have about the impact of this climate change. So I think there's always going to be a tension and it's what we see in the IPCC's sort of summary for policymakers, the approach that they take. This tension that exists between what the climate science is telling us in its purest terms. And there's always going to be a range of uncertainty about specific aspects of that climate science. But the tension that exists between what the sort of the, 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 the science community is uh, coalescing behind and what is acceptable to decision makers and policy makers This tension, I think, is it plays out in all aspects of this debate and this discussion where the actions that may need to be taken, if they're not politically palatable to the people taking them, they're simply not going to be um, you know, acted upon. So there is a sort of a compromise that, that is sought between you know, the scientific community and those uh, who are in a position to, you know, enact laws and, you know, uh, sort of try and shift consumer consumer behavior. But I think that tension will always exist and it's something we, we can't get away from. And I think it's one of the reasons why the actions that, you know, political decision makers take are always criticized so so loudly that you know we, you know we're not going far enough we're not going fast enough and being purely agnostic on this just to be playing devil's advocate there's other considerations which those decision makers are either rightly or wrongly taking into account as part of those part of those decisions and i think it shows in a lot of the political debates that that are taking place at the minute. So we had the the yellow jackets, the Gilets Jaunes in, in France, the protests about um, uh, fuel taxes. Um, there are protests uh, around the expansion of air pollution uh, zones, the, the ULEZ in London. And these are all tying into the actions that politicians are taking to act on what the scientific community is saying is necessary. Those tensions will only grow, and I think it comes down to the political response to ensure that you know the the actions that we take to reduce the impacts of climate change and to mitigate um, mitigate the worst impacts of climate change happening don't fall on the shoulders of those who are least able to support those actions. But I feel like when it comes to the financial market or just the market in general, because I think corporates have a, a very important role in this conversation. It's more about the fact that in order to be seen as proactive from the get-go, we've simplified the way that we understand climate impact 
and simplified the way that we explain and quantify climate risk in order to put mechanisms into place relatively quickly to be seen as being proactive. And so there's this risk that all the work that's being done in the first five or six years of the transition is going to be wasted if the result is going to be a flawed understanding of the real impact, the real material impact of our decisions on the planet. And I think that's what the science community is trying to put forward. Whilst I completely agree with you that it is a balancing act with policy, there is also a balancing act between just how much we're willing to compromise on the specific science in order to have a, a plan in place that makes sense to the market. I, I, I think it's a fair challenge, definitely, Marianne. So the, the counter to this, I guess, is the need to reduce emissions so quickly. It, you know, 2030 emission reduction of 43%. Um, we're, we're nowhere on, on track to, to meet that. So there is this balance between, I guess, doing it, doing things perfectly and doing things, um, in a way that is, uh, you know, quick and leads to those near term real emissions reductions. Not, you know, thinking about if if we put aside the whole debate around you know net zero by by mid century and actually just focus in on what are the actions that you know companies in in our line of work can take in the here and now that not only reduce their emissions and their exposure to these uh, elements of um, physical and transition risk, but also that are cost effective for them. So there's a business case to be made for investment in decarbonization initiatives. And that business case needs, uh, it needs data and it needs insights as to the cost effectiveness of those actions. And I think that's one of the key things that we are, um, and, and companies like us are providing to businesses that they can say, okay, well, We've got plans to, you know, uh, electrify, let's say, our, our vehicle fleet. Actually, um, by by looking at the, you know, potential risks, financial risk that we face from having a, you know, diesel fleet in in twenty thirty or twenty thirty five. Actually, if if we invest now, we can reduce that financial exposure through a series of cost-effective initiatives. And that is, you know, from a business perspective, saving them money, but from an environmental perspective is leading to reduced emissions, which is, you know, a, a, a positive thing for the business. And, you know, to, you know, viewing it cynically, we could say, well, you know, uh, a business wants to be seen to reduce its emissions. But a lot of businesses also know that their long-term social license to operate is tied in with taking action on climate. So it's providing them with the evidence that they can take to say, this is an initiative that we should prioritize because it leads to near-term uh, deep emissions reductions in a cost-effective way that we can justify that investment and we can get that investment from our CFO. So how much of this work on risk assessments and the work that you do at Resilient 
relies on international reporting standards or even regional reporting standards. Because when we met at Climate Week in London, I think the ISSB had just about announced its IFRS 1 and 2 standards. How much of that imp- those types of developments impact your work? Hugely. So it's really core to a lot of businesses' involvement in this space. So the disclosure standards are very much, for a lot of businesses, the first engagement they have with uh, climate as a topic and sustainability more broadly. They're looking at what requirements do they need to comply with on a you know national or international uh, level to meet the regulator's requirements. And there's the sort of two, there's two approaches. There's very much a tick box. Let's do our, you know, TCFD report. We'll just tick all the boxes and get it done. And then there's the more holistic approach, which is saying, okay, let's, let's look at this and actually understand the real potential opportunities and risks for our business strategy. And then let's act upon them. And if you think the, the whole, rationale behind sustainability and climate reporting is not simply to keep companies busy and to keep regulators busy in marking the homework of of companies. It's actually to shift behavior and it's to ensure that those risks and opportunities are highlighted to businesses and the shifts that we're seeing in the sort of global regulatory landscape is providing a lot of, um, it's interesting, it's providing a lot of both uncertainty to business in terms of what they actually have to report on in the here and now and in the coming few years, but also it's providing a sense of clarity as to the long-term direction of climate reporting on a global scale. Yeah, and so what was the reaction then of the business community to the arrival of the ISSB standards, which are recommendations, whereas a number of regional and national entities had already begun finalizing or officializing their own disclosure regulations is that not overwhelming for the business community i so i think definitely the business community has been overwhelmed um by the rate of new uh new standards that have been developed and have been published but i think one of the one of the core things we we were hearing at, at London Climate Action Week was businesses need clarity and they need certainty in order to invest. There's still a lot of confusion out there as to how the various standards operate together. So, for instance, you know, if you're based in the European Union, are you reporting um, to in line with the ESRSs, or are you reporting in line with what the ISSB has published? And part of the, you know, part of what we are doing with our clients is actually helping them to navigate this regulatory shift and understand where requirements are, you know, either in force or are coming in, and how they relate to other requirements in other jurisdictions. The understanding is definitely growing, but I think it will take time to fully be bedded in right across a company. So if you compare an understanding in a company's sustainability team, they're they're on it. They know they've been working on TCFD disclosures prior to this. 
So they know this world. They're starting to explore, you know, quite how you would incorporate other sustainability matters into um, into disclosure reporting. But that's only one part of an organization. And if you look at the scope of reporting that's required under uh, the European Sustainability Reporting Standards, for instance, that's going to pull in the whole company in terms of who has to feed into these uh, these disclosures. And so there's an upskilling and um, you know knowledge sharing that's going to be required right across uh, a company. But I think if we look at the, for instance, the ESRSs that were published, the final versions that were adopted contained far more so-called phase-in requirements. So the initial reporting burden is far less than it would have been previously. And companies now have more chance to go away, get their house in order, get their data collection analysis um, process in place, and then start reporting on that in later years. So I think Regulators are listening to the challenges that the businesses are facing, but are also still guided by the need for that information to be both useful for investors and comparable um, with the information that other companies are providing. There's so you know this this baseline that everyone has to provide the same information, and with the information that's going to be required in other jurisdictions. So I think over time. The standards themselves will will continue to develop. We know the ISSB will be bringing out more standards in due course, and so that should hopefully touch wood get to a world in which, although the standards, you know, you might be reporting to a slightly different uh, acronym or an initialism, you're reporting the same information, and you can use that to report against different standards right across the globe. But as I understand it, for companies in Europe or companies who want access to the European market, as in the single market, they have to abide by CSRD. And CSRD has more of a strategy with regards to how it wants the business community to behave and has you know, targets like being net zero by 2050. Whereas uh, recommendations and international standards like the ISSBs are policy agnostic, rightfully so, because they're an international st standard coming from the market. But then how do you then reconcile as a company the fact that internationally you might be aligned with the global standards, but if you want to work in the EU, if you want to have access to that market, you're going to have to adopt a different method you're completely right. The EU's approach is far more prescriptive in the rules and the sort of um, framework which it puts in place that it requires companies to report against. And over time, as I mentioned, the ISSB will be bringing out more standards such that if they are in accordance with CSRD's uh, requirements, the, the aim is that you, know, you could, in theory, report against ISSB and tick all the boxes of CSRD. But that requires them to be completely aligned, which is essentially, it's not going to happen. Um, so if a company wants to continue to operate in the EU, and there's various categories of, uh, you know, as the requirements of CSRD are rolled out, how more and more companies will be brought into scope, including those who aren't based in the EU, but do a certain level of business there. 
about how they're going to have to start reporting according to um, CSRD for the entire global group that they that they are part of. So really, this the ramifications of CSRD are going to be felt on pretty much most uh, global um, corporations. But we see this across essentially all sectors of society and, and business. The, the Brussels effect leads to companies that are wanting to either sell products in the European Union or do business there to conform to the EU standards, which typically for a range of things are higher than most jurisdictions around the world. So companies in a way are, are already used to this principle. And I think the data requirements that they have for CSRD are, are, are high. Um, but the data that they collect will enable them to you know, comply with other standards in other jurisdictions. So I think companies, uh, countries rather, um, are starting to take into account how companies are actually going to be complying with these disclosure standards on an international scale and are starting to think about this flexibility which businesses need to avoid the endless repetition of just reporting, but actually reporting for a purpose which is to change their uh, company culture and business strategy in, in the light of the need to decarbonize. But that's a very kind of positive Eurocentric view, but how likely is it that the highly prescriptive CSRD will end up almost kind of isolating the European market if companies feel like it's too difficult or too ambitious for them to align with it? And so they can just be aligned with ISSB standards and target different markets or different regions for their business models? I think it, it is an interesting question. Um, and I think there's, there's a lot of interest. So there, there, was, a, there was a poll published uh, a few weeks ago, which was along the lines of what is the most search for climate reporting standard in, in the United States? And it wasn't the SEC climate disclosure. It wasn't ISSB. It was CSRD. So companies are really looking at what this, this means for them. So if you look at the work of the ISSB and uh, the work on the European Sustainability Reporting Standards to be more aligned in what's required, I think that speaks quite strongly to the desire to avoid this situation that you mentioned about the European market becoming uh, sort of isolated uh, from, from uh, other reporting standards. How that will actually pan out in practice, I think, is still, still remains to be seen. But I think the desire is there on the part of the regulators to try and limit this risk. Um, but we can, only, we can only watch and see, really. Thanks for listening. If you've liked this episode, please feel free to share and subscribe to the show. You can catch up on all episodes of Euromoney's ESG conversation series on euromoney.com slash podcasts.